0: You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to Lynn Stone about vocabulary, specifically morphology and etymology. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And
1: I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for
0: all kids, and we know you do, too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. I saw Lynn Stone present at both the Reading League Conference and at Plain Talk Conference this past year, and she makes learning words so easy and so
0: much fun, might I add. (laughs) Yeah, so we're so excited to have Lynn Stone here today. And you may know her as the author of several books, Reading for Life, Spelling for Life, Language for Life. Are there any other ones that I miss, Lynn? Uh, There's one coming out soon called
2: Writing for Life. And when I say soon, I've been saying that for about three years. So who knows? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well we're excited for it we're ready for it when it is soon and welcome welcome to the podcast today, thank you Lynn. it's a
2: great pleasure to be here I'm really excited actually I'm a big fan of your uh, of your podcast so
1: huge honor thank you yeah thank you well we're a big fan of yours and we were a little nervous we were like nervous to ask you to be on the podcast um because you know you're so fancy. <laughs> um,
2: <but laughs> okay. I'm definitely putting that on my CV. Lindstone, fancy. Yeah. yeah.
1: God, I can't wait. So, so fancy.
2: Well done. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, it's, it's huge, a huge honor to be here and
1: lovely to talk to you as well. Yeah. Well, thank you. I thought actually we could start with the way that you started the conference at the Reading League. And I'll refresh your memory. Please do. You simply shared what are words? You 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 just shared with everyone. What are words? And I thought that was brilliant. So I was hoping you could just kind of ground us in what are words and what we should think about them.
2: Yeah, well, I, I I love that question actually, and and the reason I I sort of do talks like this and ask questions like what are words is because there are quite a few misconceptions out there, and and my job is to try to clear up those misconceptions from the viewpoint of someone who's trained in the structure of language so you know as a linguist um what what you think about is words and you think about them at the the subword level so all the parts that make up words and you think of of them in the the the, at the sort of the cluster level as well where you have phrases and sentences and so on so words are my stock and trade um and therefore i think it's a good idea to to talk about that and i think also little from little kids all the way up to adults Everybody's interested in words. You, you're kind of hardwired to learn about that stuff because what they are is the foundation of communication. And as we know, communication is survival uh, in a society. So everybody wants to know. So I like to start there, and I like to talk about that. Um, and in terms of what words are, well, one principle is is a really good starting point. And I, and this also clears up a little bit of, gosh, morphology. That's really hard, right? (laughs) So, a lot of people find morphology a bit (laughs) intimidating. Well, if you start from this principle, and and that is that every single word that you use is a base. It's a base. It's like a Lego base that you can put other parts onto. There are some words that you can't, and they're called, called unalterable bases. So, you know, you've got words like of, you know, those little function words. You can't, put a prefix or a suffix on of. You can't make it plural. You can't put it into the past tense. You can't do all of that stuff. So they're, they're unalterable, but they're a tiny, tiny set. Everything else is an alterable base. And actually some of the bases are, they have to be altered to be English words, you know, like um, struct, right? That doesn't hang around by itself. It's not a base that you see unattached mm-hmm. to other word parts. So you've got to put prefixes or suffixes like structure or construct and, and so on. So that's what words, every single word, if you start with that, every single word is or contains a base. And that's the part that carries the majority of the meaning. If you start there, it helps to build mental models of the entire system.
0: Well, I'm wondering, and I know our audience is, and I'm sure this has a million answers, but we'll start here and see where we go, which is what should teachers be thinking about as they're teaching words or students are learning words? Mm, yeah, huge, huge thing and huge
2: question. And as you said, lots and lots of answers. And I can only really answer it from my viewpoint. I can only really answer it from my perspective, Where, where is you know, there are, there may be other perspectives as well, but the way that I look at it and, and what's been successful for me, cause I've had lots and lots of students over time. And now my students are teachers as well. Cause I don't even see students one-on-one anymore. I do see groups of students, but, um, teachers are my students. And so, what should we be thinking about or what what should teachers want children to be thinking about i think i love that question do you mind if Ooh, i like yeah? that <laughs> if i go from that yeah, perspective no, i love yeah. it <laughs> yeah so um what what do we want children to think about well we want them to have the concept first of all of what words are and how they can be built what their structure is and what their their smaller parts are and i think phonics right? This word that gets bandied around a lot is basically a way of helping children think about the subword parts, the parts of words that are not the words themselves, but the components of words. And if that's taught to them in a systematic way, rather than a kind of random way, oh, we'll take your name and then we're going to look at the parts of that, but a systematic way, like here, here's some really common ones that you can put together to make new words without me, Um, then that helps children to become wordsmiths. So teachers thinking about what do I want children to know? I want them to know those parts. I want them to be able to put those parts together. I want them to be able to take words apart as well. That's a really good, brilliant starting point. And from that, you can then build, well, guess what? There are other units. There are other parts of words that are bigger than just sounds and letters that carry meaning as well. And that's where we just easily, smoothly can transition into morphology. And when you do that, you're never disappointed. It's always a fun, really exciting, wonderful thing to do. Um, and, and you're constantly learning it. I'm still learning. I'm still learning um, about word parts. And it's 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 really nice. I'm, I love it.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So t- we'll transition into morphology. I think that's a good place to go. But I will say the thing that struck me is, I was preparing for this, I was reading Language for Life. And the thing that struck me is just the playfulness of the tone of the book and how fun it is to play with words. And I just want to say that before we jump into morphology, because you brought it up. And I think it's really important that to say that kids and and I think as a teacher, you know, I always loved playing with words. I thought that was so much fun. So I'm wondering if we could kind of start with kind of grounding ourselves in like what what does it mean to what does morphology mean? Um what does I think we should maybe go into etymology? I think that might be a good Thing to reference as well. You're the expert, so I'll let you go ahead and then maybe what the, the research says about it all.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, again, a tiny little question there. Um, no, um, no, look, I, I like the way you've put all of that because they're inextricable, aren't they? They're, they're units of language that work together that, you know, we can sort of consciously separate, but when we're communicating with one on, one another, they're all mixed together at the unconscious level, which is awe inspiring in itself, and I'm actually reminded of an exercise that I do when I'm training teachers to show the difference between conscious and unconscious. Right, and which which is which is really relevant for what we're talking about today. We, we talk about syllable emphasis in one of the things that I do. We talk about um, in every word that's got more than one syllable, there's going to be a strong one that you hear louder or the vowel is more clear or so on and i say to them you know this you actually and most children by the time they're 6 totally know this from from just from language from just being immersed in language it's something that they know and you know where the syllable emphasis is because when you talk a typically developing 4 or 5 6 year old will have their syllable emphasis absolutely perfect right and any native speaker knows where to put the strong syllables in. and But that you do all that at the unconscious level. When I start to ask teachers to be conscious of it, when I say, hey, take this word dinosaur, right? Where's the strong syllable there? Because we don't go dinosaur like that, right? We, we, we go dinosaur. And so the strong bit is that first syllable. They really struggle with that. And I go, you know it unconsciously but when you're conscious of it when you actually have to start articulating what that is it's really difficult and so it is with morphology with morphemes we do understand the basic meanings of most of the morphemes when we have um, our lexicon built when we you know we've built our vocabulary but actually talking about that and deconstructing it is really, really hard. And and so morphology and etymology, where the words come from, are intertwined to help to bring that into and up to the conscious level. So I think, in my view, etymology will inform why the morphemes are like they are. Even though we know the meaning of the morphemes and we can pronounce the morphemes and maybe even spell them, etymology helps us bring that to the conscious level. And that's why it's important to talk about both of those things. So I've answered two of the things that you were talking about there. I'm not sure if I answered all of them though. So you can reframe the question if you wish.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I'd love to hear some of the research and what it says about that. But I also think it might be helpful. I love examples. Do you have any examples that you could give to share how etymology informs the morphology? Yeah, um, here's what I learned really recently, because like I say, it's a it's a lifelong journey
2: and you're always discovering new stuff, right? <laughs> and here's a new thing that I wasn't conscious of. When I, again, I, I when I work with people, I say, give me the words that you find the hardest to spell or the hardest to teach or remember, because I'm really interested in those. Why is it that we don't remember those words? And inevitably this word onomatopoeia comes up, right? Because, you know, it's barely complicated you there's lots of schwa vowels <laughs> yeah. in there and yeah. is it onomato or is it onomata because I say onomata and blah 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 right and and that pia bit right p-o-e is this it's a base and I, I somebody told me this about a month ago it's a base that is also in the base poem Right when we make poems it's to do with words and sounds. Oh. Do you know I mean P O E P R right poem even though the pronunciation is completely different the etymology helps to tell us the base, those both, both those bases are the same. They help to tell us how to spell that flipping word. Right. And I was just going to say that actually <laughs> will help me remember how <laughs> to spell know, it. right? It, that, that's the brilliant thing. So it's, it, there's a morpheme there, but it's the etymology of those morphemes that drives that sequence of letters that makes that word, that word, and therefore easier to spell. And Easier to conceptualize, you're just making more paths in your brain about what onomatopoeia really is and how that relates to poetry.
0: Oh, that's so oh, cool. that's so fun! Ah, <laughs> oh. I love learning those. Did you all see yeah. the thing about mother recently that came out on some of the, the Facebook pages? No. There was like this whole argument about, um, oh. well, someone did a really cute little thing for Mother's I did. Day, a short. It had the schwa for the O and then people were like, that's, it's not a schwa for the O and I, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I don't know those things too well. So I was like reading all the comments. I was really into it. And then I got really deep and someone had said that, oh, what's it called Lynn when it was it, like, because it used to be a U scribal, but then in sc- old scribal script o. scribal O <laughs> and then people were like, it's not actually a scribal O because of the etymology and the word that it came from, from like, I'm gonna get it wrong, but somewhere like in a Germanic language way long ago, it was actually the root was still oh, and it was just this whole argument. I just thought it was like fascinating to see like where did this come yeah. from it can be a lot of <laughs> just a simple word, simple word like mother it can be a lot of myths out there, <laughs> a lot of arguments absolutely about it. arguments and myths, and also
2: sometimes we lose sight of the woods, you know, for the trees. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't don't know a lot of kids that get past (laughs) elementary school not being able to spell mother and not knowing what it means. So can you move on? (laughs) Because we've got bigger fish to fry, right? Right. (laughs) Than this word that everyone can spell and understand, right? It doesn't drive me crazy. I mean, I love the fact, right, that people like linguistics. They like the structure of language, and that makes me really happy. When they get upset, it's not good. But there is a thing that does drive <laughs> me crazy on social media, and I and thank you for giving me this platform to say it out loud. Oh, sure, <laughs> yeah. And are you ready? Are you on the edge of your seat? It's, it's this, right? It's yeah. when people go how do you say the sounds in this word? And you're talking about, you know, maybe a hundred thousand people from all sorts of different backgrounds and different countries and different towns, even within their own countries. And somebody goes, how do you say it? How, or or even worse, the worst question is, how do I map this word as if, how do I squish these phonemes into these graphemes or what, what are the correct, (laughs) what's the right way to say this word? There is no right way. Come on. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, then there's all these arguments ensue, but, oh, but if you say it properly, it's like this, or I say it like this, therefore everyone in the world needs to say it like this. And that, you know, that drives me crazy because what, what, what the original poster is trying to do is say, basically, how do I teach that so that children remember it? And that's got nothing to do with how people think the word should be said. It's got everything to do with the sequence of letters, and the sounds are secondary. They're secondary to it, so that drives me crazy. But I do try and talk about that a bit.
0: Well, and I love that you brought up that. I mean, you know, we're we're talking to you, and obviously, we would say a lot of words (laughs) differently um, in two different countries. But (laughs) like you said, even within within a state, within a, a you know from city to city, you might say things differently. And, and I think I, I love that you say it and that, like, we need to respect all the ways. That yeah. People what are the sounds
2: in this word is not the right question. The right question is what is the letter sequence? Why is it like that? And how do I teach it so that people remember that?
1: It's really helpful. Yeah, out. for sure. That's really helpful. I love that. I'm. Uh, that's going to be my new comment, Lynn. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> if it helps one person, it's
2: been worth going mad for. Her.
1: You're right. <laughs> Lynn, Lynn Stone says, "Oh no, don't <laughs> yeah. quote me. No shame if any <laughs> listeners
2: have posted. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I never do it to shame anyone. I just, I try to get people to ask better no, questions. Not. You know." Better questions. And because right. that leads to better answers and better outcomes. And then that leads to better lives and so on. So it's like, you know, it's like that old thing, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. You know, that sort of thing. For want of a better question, an answer was lost. And that can build to a whole, you know, academic career is lost, right?
0: I'm wondering about I mean, um, Lori, you brought up this idea of like how words can be so fun and the tone of Lynn's book is really fun. And I'm just wondering, Lynn, if you have any suggestions for teachers on how to keep how to, or how to build that like curiosity and fun kind of way of looking at words versus making it feel like memorizing a bunch of rules and old ways that mm-hmm. <laughs> this is how words were made. And it, cu- it could feel, I think, really boring for students, depending on. How how it's you're presented. quite right. You're quite right, <laughs> Melissa. And
2: you know something else that's really boring for students, right? Is is giving them a list of whole words and then going color that in or <laughs> draw a coffin around it. You know those sort of th- that sort of thing. That's really boring too. Mm-hmm. So so there's that. But look, it. I think it starts with, or I've seen this happen in real life with real teachers. It starts with teachers having an expanded. Knowledge of this, we can't have the blind leading the blind, and so that that's where I come in, where I try to raise teacher capacity on this. And as I said, you know, I'm pretty far on in my career, and I've been studying words for a long time, and I'm still learning this stuff. There is absolutely no shame in any of that. That's a, that's a you know that's an attitude um, that really helps. So that's the first thing. You, you've got to want to be this lifelong learner of that stuff. And there's no shame involved or, or, you know, sometimes when we let go of things that, that didn't work that well before, it's really crucial to not have an identity crisis while we're doing that. And after all, when you go into teaching that does become your identity, especially with modern teacher training methods. There will be a lot during that degree that you do that goes, what is your philosophy? How is this bound with your identity? There's a lot of exercises you have to do on that, right? So therefore, it can, it can lead to a bit of a crisis, letting go of all that other stuff and then having to think really hard and deeply about words. But when you do, that's what starts to make it fun it's not really you know i can't give you a tip and go oh make it fun by doing this you make it fun by by knowing and having that openness to, to finding out and not being worried that you're going to encounter something that you don't know, because guess what we have this thing called the internet right, and if you don't <laughs> if you don't know, there are really good places that you can go to find it and i can I can be standing there in front of hundreds of people and somebody'll ask me a question about a word, and I'll go i don't know, I don't carry all of it in my head but I've got Etim Online, the app here on my, on my phone. So I'm just going to look it up for you. I don't mind doing that. That's what makes it fun. when When you can actually model that behavior that, well, if I don't know, I know where to find that out. Let's do that together. You never, ever have to be this kind of, guru, you know, that has it all in your head. And you can be wrong as well. I've had lots of hypotheses about words that have turned out to be absolutely, completely false. I'm all right. I'm I'm fine to let that go as well. (laughs) You know, it's okay. So that, that I think that's the fun part. I'm sorry if it's vague, but it comes from teacher capacity and the broadening of teacher knowledge. First and foremost, you need to know more than your students and you need to make sure that your students Understand that if there is a limit to your knowledge, that that's okay too. And there's a way to, you know, move the limits on that knowledge.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering if, like, the words that we're choosing, right? So I'm thinking about a teacher listening and I'm thinking, okay, um, the teacher's reading a novel or reading a book with their students. The words that we choose, it almost feels less important to. I mean, I mean uh, it's important in its own right, but it's less important to obsess over that part than like, okay, now we're going to play with these words and kind of like allow your students to get in there and get messy with the words. But you have to be familiar and, you know, and have some sort of preset knowledge about some basic morphology quote stuff. Yeah. Does that sound right? Like, you know, I just think sometimes I know when I was a teacher, I would stress so much about like, are these the right words? Are these the right academic Mm. words to be teaching? And, you know, I think just trying words feels really important here. Just trying to play with words and language. And I think students are brilliant in that way. They are. Uh, They find it very interesting because, again, it's a survival mechanism,
2: playing with words is the way that an infant will acquire their native language so it's something that you're hardwired to do first mm. of all you know so so you build on that instinct and therefore you can make it really really joyful but I, I like I like Laurie what you were saying about obsessing over is this the right word time and time again I'll be asked well do you have a list of those words like can I have a list uh, the, the, you know this thing that you've this resource you have is there a list in there and all my career i've resisted making lists because the <laughs> best word list is a book that's the best word list that you can get right it's a book that either builds knowledge or craft craft what's the word i want to say craftfully is that even a word or did i just make that up see it doesn't matter, right?
1: You made it up, <laughs> I think, but it doesn't matter. It I'm gonna substitute artfully. It. artfully we, know, we
2: know what you mean, artfully, deftly, right? <laughs> so the way that you the, the way that you teach the words within that book, you know, and and the, the joy that you have with that, and the way that you build knowledge and build stories that that children listen to that's the important thing if you take it that that's the that's the art bit right let's take it to the science bit okay i'm going to give you some numbers if you have a fully formed lexicon and that's you know a vocabulary that is a typically developing adult vocabulary or developed adult vocabulary you're in between about 30,000 to 70,000 word and word parts you kind of know instantly and automatically without having to look them up, you know what those words are. Um, you can, if if you have a sight word vocabulary, you can also read those words. And if you have an orthographic lexicon, you can spell those words as well, which is quite a lot. And they're all separate forms of language, right? But anyway, thirty to 70,000 is the pantry, is the, the, the ingredients of language that you're working with. Thirty to seventy thousand units, which is insanely good, right? That's just awe inspiring. Now, you did not acquire those thirty to seventy thousand units from your teacher having a list, right? There was no, there is no. <laughs> that right? would be a lot of That's lists. That's a huge list. <laughs> imagine that at ten a week. Okay, can you see? It, that's not how we acquire our vocabulary. What we do... is
1: still not enough 10 a week. Lynn. I know.
2: You'd be there until you were, you know, the oldest person in the world plus some, right? So that's not how it happens. It doesn't happen like that. That's not how we acquire language. It's not how we build our lexicon. We can facilitate the building of our lexicon, though, and teachers can facilitate that by coming up with really good examples Of words and word families, right? And discovering them. So back to that list thing. If you want to know what the word, what the right words should be, I'd like to get you to ask a better question. There's a better question here, right? And the better question is what is the family? That this these words belong to? How are they related to one another? Because instead of studying one word, you've got four or five, six words that have got that pattern or have got that morpheme or have got that etymology. And now we're really talking about building a mental model of how the writing system works. Right? So the best word list is a book and the, your choice of words, it's only ever going to be exemplars of the thirty to seventy thousand words that you build through speaking and listening, through reading and through writing.
0: Link, can you yeah. give an example of that family that you were just? Talking about? I, I know I'm asking you to like yeah. pull it out of, out no, of your fine. head, but luckily, luckily, there's lots in. <laughs> just so people know luckily, what you there's mean, there's lots in my
2: head when it comes to this stuff. So, you know, so that's good. one of my favorite ones. And I did this quite recently with a student. Um, it's the word candle. Right. That's a great word. Candle, you know, blow out the candle and so on. Turns out that canned bit, light or fire, right, comes in incandescent as well. So that's light that you get from heat. So canned, incandescent. I love that. That's a great family. That's, that's mm-hmm. one I, that's one I love. There's probably other words in the candle family, but off the top of my head, I don't know now. So I'd have to look that up. But, <laughs> but yeah, so you can study candle and you can go, Oh, well, let me see. That's two syllables. And the first syllable is CDC and the second syllable is consonant plus LE. There's the syllable types. Hooray. Let's move on. Right. Or you can go, see that base canned. That's in this word incandescent. What a cool word that is. You know, I know which one I would choose. Right, so that's what I mean by families, and that information is freely available. It's not like you have to carry it in your head. You can figure all of that out, you know. So I'd encourage stu- teachers to do that, and it's a big ask. I know so you've got to do a lot more in your day than just go on Etim online and you know have um you know raps, rapture over words, but still.
0: Oh, well, I just learned that chandelier is really. <gasps> I knew to there was it. another one.
2: Yes. <laughs> That's, right. that's <laughs> right. Oh,
1: that's a yeah, great one. Yeah. yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> oh my gosh, mm-hmm. it's joyful. It's so fun. It's so much. And fun. they expect. I don't know if it's because yeah. we're like word nerds or what, but we want everyone.
0: And it's like a little puzzle when you hear and you're like, oh, like that does fit, yeah. right? It's like it fits your together. brain. I see. It. Just grew <laughs> your brain, just grew in
2: your pathway, and. You know, which is really nice. And and we, we want everyone to be word nerds. It's not that I want the children to then be able to spell <laughs> yeah. chandelier and incandescent, right? It's not that. It's it's that we're setting the scene and we're helping them build schemas. And schemas are mental models of things. And you can, you can build those mental models or you can have everything in silos with no connection to each other. And you're going to build your lexicon much slower that way. I know that there comes a point when you're building your lexicon and I remember being conscious of it where you go, Oh, I can see where all the dots joined. Right? I could see it in my head where they're all joined, right. And how they all join together. Something that's really handy for that is learning other languages as well. So I learned Dutch and I learned French, I learned German and Latin. So I was lucky in that I had those other vocabularies mm-hmm. um, to, to, to fall back on and make those connections as well. So you know, this is another thing I recommend in primary school, especially. is that children start to learn other languages.
0: When is is that especially true for English, like for people learning English to know other languages? Because... I feel like English is kind of a mishmash of <laughs> so many different languages. Very confusing, yes.
2: It, it, can, it can be, I suppose, because it has, it. you know, there are lots of words in English and there are lots of words that mean almost the same thing because of the migration patterns of humans, you know, visiting the British Isles and staying there and conquering it and doing all that sort of stuff. There, it's definitely quite a rich history. And so um, knowing the neighboring languages are having a smattering of you know germanic languages or romance languages or both is incredibly helpful um, you know for for uh, for in- for building again your english lexicon so yeah i uh, languages other than english no matter what they are though are 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 good to study and it's it's funny because people who don't speak english as their native language basically learn their native language and English, because that's the lingua franca of the world of business and commerce and trade and um, you know science and, and everything. So everyone learns English, but the English speaking people just learn English, which is a bit of a shame because we're completely capable of learning other languages as well. It is mm. a
0: shame. <laughs> i oh, that's one thing I've always wished I, I knew in a, a different language and I don't. It's never too late. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs>
1: I know I feel like maybe I didn't either put enough effort in in high school or maybe it wasn't taught the way that I, my brain Same could perceive I, I haven't decided but it was very challenging for me and I just I think I just shut down to do enough just enough to just to pass the class well pass by <laughs> now yeah. you've had the experience
2: yeah. of somebody who um needed better teaching maybe in spelling as well, but you've had it with another language. So it's definitely down to the teaching. Definitely, definitely down to the teaching um, that you would have shied away from it. Um, and it, you can say the same with spelling and writing, right? <laughs> to steer the question back to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to my favorite subjects, of
0: course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> um, and I like. I feel like it's kind of a great, good time to say that there are tons of resources. Like I know teachers out there might be wondering like, What resources do I have for morphology, for etymology, and in language for life? There's, I mean, it's great. It it walks you through everything. But at the back, if you really want a list, you kind of did do a list. list. You you did a a (laughs) list of of morphemes. Yeah, Latin and Greek
2: ones.
1: (laughs) I I I think you
2: kind of, if you're going to talk about morphology and write about it. You might as well do that list, but I'm not saying to teachers, you know, yes, t- yes. take the first five items and teach that and then test it on Friday and move on. You know, right. it's a reference point, but yeah, you're yeah. right. You caught me. I made a list. It's
1: like, it's, it, this is just, it's messy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not as clean as we, I, I think all would like it to be. You also recommended another resource, which at Plain Talk, which I purchased immediately mm-hmm. and we've been having a lot of fun with it in our house. It's called Once Upon mm-hmm. a Word. I was lo- I've been looking at my Amazon order on my phone. I couldn't remember the name of the book. Once Upon a Word, uh a word origin dictionary for kids, and that has been really fun to to see if the words that we're pulling out of the books that we're reading are in that that word origin dictionary. So those resources I think are really cool yeah. and usable for teachers and students. Absolutely. They're lovely. They're absolutely lovely. Do you have anything else? Yes, to I'm add? glad you
2: asked. The, uh, because for, for students as well, <laughs> there's this, there's this book that, uh, that we sometimes use as well. And it's called House Ox Stick. And it's an etymology of the alphabet. So it takes every letter of the alphabet and it goes, this is what it used to look like. Or this is why we've brought it in to our present alphabet and with beautiful illustrations mm. and, and really, really at that kid level. Um, but hugely enlightening. For teachers as well. So it's got that dual purpose of of giving of expanding our knowledge and giving us a, a vehicle to expand the knowledge of children as well. It's called ox house Oops. stick. <laughs> I'm not good there with the order of stuff.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. I was just Thank Googling. You. So I'm making sure I have the I right. I got it on the shelf behind <laughs> me, but um, yeah, I prefer to keep my eyes on
2: the screen. So sorry about that. Yeah. So what what is it ox house stick? <laughs> that way round?
1: I've got to remember that OHS. Yep, got it. Okay, we'll link it. We'll
0: link it. I'm just curious. I we feel like like we've touched on this already, but I just want to like make it super clear for people and make sure they they're taking away the right thing. That what I hear us talking about this whole time is that both etymology and morphology can be helpful for. All parts of reading, I want to say. So meaning decoding, it can help students when they're decoding. It can help students when they're spelling. It can help students when they're comprehending or making meaning of the text. And it can help in all of those places. Is that correct to say, Lynn? And then can you tell a little bit about how it helps for each? Yeah. um, Again, I'm speaking from two
2: perspectives. So the first one is... um, a perspective of a practitioner who has succeeded over and over again to teach children to read and write so you know you've got my anecdotes there which which are 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 not you know their anecdotes um but they're anecdotes over a, a fairly long and successful career in 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 intervention so they have some i don't know truth to them I guess or use maybe but but it's also backed up with you know there there is Quite compelling research about morphology, about word uh, parts, and how that that's very helpful uh, for helping to embed those higher levels of vocabulary in uh, in students. If you want the names of the studies, I'll come back to you with those because again, I don't carry those in my head at all. <laughs> uh, I, so I'll look them up for you. But there is, you know, when when I succeed at something in my career, I go. I have to reverse engineer that and go. Well, why, why, why did that work? It's it's not enough just to go, oh, that works, and then try to market that. It's, it's why did that work? What what is it? What are the components of that? And so I will look for um, reasons why that worked, and then that also helps me to tweak what I'm already doing. So. One of, the, one of the things that was transformative uh, for us at Lifelong Literacy and, and for uh, the, the tutors that work with, with my students is that we, we, we did two things that really changed things for us. And then I had to look for, oh, why is that? <laughs> How come that worked? Because I did it from, from instinct more than anything else. Um, and one of the things is that we shifted our focus from reading to writing. So say you're in a 45 minute session with a student. What we used to do was maybe 35 minutes of reading interventions. So uh we you know we'd warm up with phonemic awareness and we'd 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 get a text and we'd decode it and we'd look at component parts and we'd drill you know like I'm showing you sh what sound sh great. I'm saying sh what write it down. You know all that sort of stuff. That's all reading type uh Work. Um, let's do this for fluency. Read that again with your with your voice better. And what did that mean? And so on. Right. So we so we did that. When we shifted for ten minutes of reading as opposed to thirty five minutes of writing, two things happened over time. One of the things that happened was that the children got better at writing. Of course, they did, right? Because we were practicing writing. <laughs> but they also got better at reading. When we were just focusing on reading, they got better at reading, but they didn't get better at writing. So that that was one thing where word parts and things like you know you, you again it's inextricable etymology, morphology, phonology as well. They 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 all join together to to make help children form robust mental orthographic images of words. So that's placing words into long-term memory. They all help them to do that. When we got them to write the words rather than just read or recognize the words, that strengthened it even further for them. And I'm talking about children who have developmental disorders of literacy, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and other uh, problems with memory or working uh, working memory and processing speed and so on. So I'm talking about a population that usually gets absolutely missed out in general education and they became better at reading and writing. So, so that transformed what we did and, and their path. So I hope that's answering your question, Melissa. But then there was another part as well. And the other part that transformed thing for, things for us was when we stopped giving them words and sentences and paragraphs on Decontextualized things, you know? So if we're studying the word, let's say we're studying the grapheme CK, and I want them to be able to use that grapheme and, and to know that it doesn't ha- occur at the beginning of English words. And, you know, it's usually after a single vowel and so on, right? Um, I could... In in the old days, right? I would just take any random word and I'd go, Hey, this word thick, right? It's it, this is an example of that, right? right? <laughs> uh, except, and this word think the k in think is just a K on its own because you can't use CK after a, a consonant, right? Except for Max Planck, but that's a whole different thing, right? <laughs> okay. We won't go down that path just yet, right? So, right. <laughs> so, um, well, it would be random, whereas. When I started looking at the work of Natalie Wexler, Judith Hockman, I realized that we needed to build knowledge. And and that that realization also came from a a trend, a worrying trend that I saw in the students that we, we were working with over the last 20 years. And what I was seeing with them was a knowledge gap as well. I saw that these children didn't know the days of the week, the months of the year. They didn't know. They couldn't recite those. And that's very basic stuff. What else didn't they know? It turns out quite a lot because during their primary education, they were doing decontextualized stuff that never built into anything either. So there was this knowledge gap. So they were being Mm -hmm. taught things like, Let's do inferencing this year, right? So, for a whole year, they would do blah, blah inferencing on stuff that wasn't related, the the, the topics that weren't related to one another, and their knowledge was suffering. So, when we started to, instead of um, just take random words and random sentences, when we started to build knowledge with that and stick to one subject, so now that CK graphene, well, we're studying birds. A baby bird is a chick right? So chick is going to be more relevant and part of that mental model than, you know, the word thick or the word stick, unless you're saying you build a nest with sticks and so on. Do you know what I'm saying? So when, when we, when we came away from Mm -hmm. random and went into knowledge building, that transformed the, uh, the progress of the response to intervention as well. And therefore, if you've got a better response to intervention, you you kind of know that at tier one, if you're doing something like that, you're going to then prevent rather than have to intervene. You're building fences at the top of the cliff rather than being an ambulance at the bottom, which you know isn't ideal.
1: That's fascinating. It it really aligns too with some of the ahas that we had as we uh, started learning about knowledge building, um, and it makes me think about. A quote. I'm not going to get it right, Melissa, because I didn't pull it up exactly. But uh, spoiler alert for anyone listening: we have Doug Fisher uh, later on this summer, and it's making me think of something that he said during the podcast. He said, "Every every writer is a good reader, but not every reader is a good writer." Am I right, Melissa? Do you remember that? I don't. I don't remember. Or good
0: readers. <laughs> Good writers are. That was the the gist for sure. (laughs) That was the gist.
1: I was like, I'm I'm trying to get it verbatim. It's not going to happen. But that, it feels, that feels like exactly what you're saying, Lynn, right? Like if you can do it one way, you're not necessarily able to reverse it, but if you can reverse it, you can do both. Yep, absolutely. One, reading and writing
2: are not the flip side of one another. That's, that's really, really, really not true. Reading is is a, is a sub skill like of writing. Like you've got to be able to, um, have an understanding of how the, the, the graphemes go together and the morphemes go together to make words to be able to write. And you can stop right there. You can, you can, you can stop at reading and never ever write a word, but you can't get to writing unless you do have that basic foundational knowledge of how it all goes together. And that comes through reading. So yeah, it's, it really, it, it's very, um, it's a little bit daunting and a little bit frightening to go, I'm not going to focus on reading. What do you mean? It's not called the writing league, right? It's not, you know, the na- <laughs> what do you mean I'm not going to talk about reading as much? Right? N- yeah. So,
0: <laughs> what about the science, the science of reading? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's not called. <laughs> That's what everyone's e- Exactly. About.
2: Like This. this is a huge word, you know. Um, and, and we've done a really, really good job, I think, of even making that part of the national conversation, just reading itself. But hey, you know, got bad news for you guys. Writing's the hard part. Reading's a piece of cake, right? Relatively speaking. And and I'm not saying that to insult (laughs) anybody who hasn't acquired reading. I don't, I don't mean that, but you know, I've, I've worked in special ed for a long time and it was absolutely a no-brainer that every child that came to see us would end up reading like course course but not writing you never ever took that for granted because as a practitioner you know that that is tough it's really tough and it's not the same
1: yeah it is so tough that that is such a difficult skill to to write well and to be able to have the knowledge of the topic to do it i feel like when when we can support students in any area like that, that's helpful to get them to, I mean, they're, we're removing that knowledge piece. They can, if we're giving them that right, then they have more time, more space in their brain freed up for all the other tasks that are difficult with writing. So they don't have to think about, well, what am I writing about? I have that knowledge. And, and now I, you know, I, I've, I've been studying birds. I know that a chick, is a, is a baby, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I can put that together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I and they that. support one another, of course. I mean, the more you read,
2: the better it is for you in terms of your spelling because you get this exposure again, you know, statistically speaking to what, what the common patterns are and, and what the constraints are in language. You've got to read But like one of the things, the first things that we do with a student is we say, this is how you improve your spelling Even if you never come to see us again. And the first thing that you need to do is read. You need to read a lot. So, you know, it's, it's, and they, and they support one another. Of course they do. They, they build. But with reading and writing, there are finite and constrained skills that we want children to become automatic at as quickly as possible. And that's decoding. And that's spelling and punctuation. We want them to be able to not have to think about that so that they can get over to the really nice parts where they become increasingly strategic. If you think of, you know, the reading rope or um, even, um, even the simple view of reading, we want them to be increasingly strategic at linguistic comprehension and at text generation. And we get through that by giving them those skills early and well.
0: When you're making me think too, I know we've talked mostly we wanted to stay focused on <laughs> etymology and vocabulary during this, but now I'm now I just have a quick question because we've talked about writing and I just read the language for life and I want to know if do you want to talk at all about this idea of grammar? Because I know that is another one where it's often painfully boring in school and very disconnected <laughs> from the other work that's happening. Um do you want to talk a bit about the power of it and Maybe some best practices. Sure.
2: Do I want to talk about grammar? No, I never want to talk about grammar. It's just a terrible subject. <laughs> it's not useful at all, and I hardly think about it ever. Um, <laughs> no. Grammar and syntax. I mean, gosh, right? It's so cool because what what it is, what what grammar and syntax is, is is the, the sort of the outward expression of the workings of the inner mind, right? The way that words go together and the relationships that they have. They're like people. It's like Melrose Place, okay? A sentence is like a soap opera, right? Because <laughs> it's got these components all with their individual personalities, but not just their personalities, their relationships, their, the way that they have power over one another, the way that they govern one another, the way that they skew one another, that you can you can place a word before another word and suddenly the sentence means a completely different thing. I mean you know, grammar and syntax. <laughs> I've never heard grammar sounds so cool.
1: <laughs> I'm very excited right now. I want to know where Lynn was when I was in sixth grade with a right. purple piece of chalk having to put, deconstruct Psychic a sentence.
2: <laughs> really? <laughs> look, that, I, look, I love that deconstructing of sentences. But yeah, I know that you're reading and, you know, I don't want to be too kind of product specific here, but I know that you're reading Language for Life right now. That edition of Language for Life doesn't have my thinking on it regarding the personalities and the relationships quite as much as this new edition that I'm working on has. So I'm handing in the manuscript for that on the 1st of September, fingers crossed, barring any cataclysms, Um, I'm handing that in and then that (laughs) will go through its publishing process and be released sometime next year. Now that has got things like, I've got to show you this since you asked, (laughs) it's got their personalities and illustrations. So pronouns, right, are syntactic stunt oh, doubles. Oh my God. So we've got this like this woman, I love a it. stunt double, dressed up in her stunt kit with her motorbike helmet under her, her arm. And they have I've really brought the whole personality and relationships thing into it. Um and I think it's a good idea. I think it's a really good idea and kids dig it. So yeah. we can always we can always make it more interesting. But it comes back down to teacher knowledge, what I'm really trying to do is is get that idea into teachers that this isn't just a noun is a naming word. Let's move on. It's like a noun. They're syntactic royalty. They have servants. Did you know that? They have like a whole retinue of words that only work for nouns and won't (laughs) work for anyone else. Nouns are the only words that have that. They've got these servants, you know, they've got pronouns that come in for them. They've got determiners that kind of go, hey, everybody, look busy, a noun's coming. They've got adjectives. They're the only ones that describe nouns. And they've got prepositions (laughs) that will connect nouns to everything else. That's amazing, right? But nobody ever talks about that. It's just (laughs) a
1: noun is a naming word. It's not. It's it's a
2: soap opera out there, folks.
1: (laughs) I know. I was thinking as you were talking, if this were like the Middle Ages, you could probably create like a whole cool chart with with like the um, hierarchy (laughs) Mm -hmm. of the grammar system. Although Melrose (laughs) Place Like maybe a good college version of that. Yeah, it's kind of outdated too.
2: (laughs) You know, anybody sort of um, born after 1990 will have no idea what I'm talking about there. But at least I didn't say say (laughs) dynasty, right? At least I said Melrose Place, which is a bit... (laughs) <laughs> More modern, so
1: oh, so that's a good one that we say differently. Oh, you say dynasty, dynasty, yeah. dynasty.
2: Over and here. you know, I, yeah. I say dynamite. I don't say dynamite because it's all to do with power, right? D y n. Yeah, it's to do with power. Um, so sure. you know, pronunciation never consistent, but boy, that morpheme's
1: consistent, isn't it? It's so always it a teachable yeah. moment. So, <laughs> can I ask you a question? I know. Can I ask a question that's been like I've been thinking about since you were talking about. The the playing with words with morphology, and then we connected it to writing. (laughs) Is there, have you ever seen kids in their editing process feel more comfortable moving things around after they feel good about playing with words and like moving the word parts around and exploring that? Do you ever see that transfer into writing? Because I always felt like when I was a teacher, the hardest part was to get kids to edit and to Move parts around and to get excited about, oh, you know, changing this part or that part or switching it from start to the end of the sentence to the beginning, and wouldn't that sound more exciting? Because they were like, "No, I did it. I'm done. I just, I just want to hand it in, and I already wrote it down." You know, we weren't doing things (laughs) always on the computer. So, I'm again, I'm aging (laughs) myself right now. (laughs) Well, there's two ways. Again, there's there's two sort of answers that I have for that.
2: Um, The first one is that let's face the reality. Of writing, there's a reality in writing, and that reality is this: editing is horrible. It's a nightmare. It's unpleasant, and you know nobody likes it. Like I, I, <laughs> I could, I could call myself a writer now. I think I it'd be okay for me to actually use that title. I guess right. I call I, I, so I might call myself a writer. But boy, I don't want to go back and look at what I've written. Ah, I would rather do anything else in the world. It's uh, like yeah. it's how I developed my incredibly. <laughs> gifted procrastination skills right just from having to edit stuff i am you know so good at procrastinating because editing exists do you know what i mean so so let's face that <laughs> reality first of all okay that's a real yeah. thing and it happens in everybody's brains right how do we remedy that that's the second part of the question and and the remedy for that is to actually make sure again it's about proportions about numbers it's about percentages and to make sure that when you are actually doing a writing focus and when you're in a writing block, for instance, in your literacy block, that you reduce the drafting time and you increase the editing time. And the way that you do that is using work like Hockman and Wexler. Again, they really put into a very, very structured way of how to recognize what fragments are and know how you can manipulate fragments of sentences to make really good sentences in a way that doesn't actually kill you with boredom right so that that's that's my <laughs> review of the writing revolution basically it's the remedy for editing boredom <laughs> right so so yeah hopefully that that gives you some uh, insight into how maybe to help it's about proportion and it's about intentionally working with that, uh, manipulation of sentence parts. And that comes from fragments. It comes from appositives. It comes from, uh, conjunctions and so on. So yeah, Hockman and Wexler, there, there isn't a better resource for that. I don't think.
1: Yeah. And I have the book right here. So if you're watching, (laughs) you're watching, here's the book. Um, if you're not, if you're, if you're listening, um, we, had them on the podcast. So we'll make sure to link that episode too. So you can learn more about the writing Mm. revolution. Um, I'm wondering though, Lynn, if we might want to kind of bring this, bring this home with some practical ways teachers can apply what we talked about today. (laughs) Do you have any recommendations for teachers? I don't know. Three sounds like a nice round number, but I will leave it up to you. (laughs) Firstly, don't reinvent the wheel.
2: If you are going to build knowledge and get students to write about it, there will be a text out there that that you can use. You don't have to rewrite and invent new text and and have that as part of your planning. So there are lots of resources for that core knowledge, and um, even dare I say, Chat GPT, you can actually go to that um, that bot now and say, "Write me a short paragraph for grade three on ravens." And they'll give you a a, a framework so that you can then work from that. You can even go put more adjectives in because we're studying adjectives right now, or I want more words that have CK in them and so on. You can do that. You can make the bot do that. Right. So that's the first thing. Use. Yeah. (laughs) Use what's around you rather than thinking that you have to come up with all of this stuff yourself. Cause that's, that's just, that's a nightmare for teachers. You know, it's a lot of work Um, in terms of, Again, writing when it comes to grammar and syntax, make sure you as a teacher are really comfortable with what part of, what the, what the parts of speech are and how they relate to one another. And there's plenty of training out there. There is plenty of, um, there are plenty of resources about that. Your dictionary is a really, really good resource. You, you, on your computer, you have something that will tell you what part of speech a word is and all the different parts of speech it could be depending on where they are in the sentence. So again, you ha- there is a resource for that already. Become familiar with that because that's going to help you answer all of those sticky questions. And then thirdly, the, the, the big tip really is understanding and, and being happy to grow your understanding of how words are formed and what those parts, what those word parts are. And that comes from this understanding that every word is a base and we're coming right back to the, where we started every word is a base or contains a base, even if it doesn't look like it. If you can figure out and find ways to figure out what that is, you're laughing and you'll never, ever be disappointed. It's always, always enlightening and fun.
0: We love that. Thank you so much. Before you leave, we'd love to ask you our four rapid fire mm. questions. Sure. In? Why not? <laughs> All right. just share the first thing that comes to mind. So no pressure. <laughs> okay. First question. What do you love to read? I love to read factual
2: books. Yep. Yeah, any, any, usually biographies. Um, if I'm, if I'm relaxing, it'll be a biography. You know, that's when I'm going really easy on myself, but mostly yep. Yeah, book,
1: books <laughs> about language, <laughs> books about thought. What's the best In biography the- you just read that you, that you've read lately?
2: Oh, well, I answered, I have answered that question. So I've got to come to the first thing Um, that came to my mind. The best biography I ever read was Parkey, um, which is Michael Parkinson, uh, who's an an interviewer from the United Kingdom, but basically was just, is just, and he doesn't interview anymore, but he has, he just has questions and insights and the personality that that you just love. So that was my favorite biography ever. I think the last biography I read was, uh, I think might've been Bob Mortimer, um, he's a comedian from the United Kingdom as well. And it's about it's about his life and the fact that he had a heart attack and how that changed everything for him.
0: All right. What do you love to watch? Ted Lasso. I love yes. Ted. But didn't someone else just answer that? I'm not surprised. <laughs> I feel like the last person we talked to said yeah, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I'm not
2: surprised. Yeah, yeah. It's just very, very light um, and uplifting and so uplifting funny. Like you, you laugh out loud. So I can't, it drops on Wednesdays here. I don't know when it drops for you, but Wednesdays is kind of like party yeah, night here at, uh, at, at at Stone Mansions. <laughs> and you still like season three? Love it. Yeah. The redemption that's happening right now is blowing my mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you love to listen to?
2: I have a wide range of music, so it'll depend on my mood. Uh, so I have thousands and thousands of songs. Music was my absolute special interest from birth, basically. So um, I, I love to listen to all sorts, but my favorite band is the Smiths. So they're my default. I will listen to the Smiths if, you know, no matter what mood. So, yeah, that's what I, I love to listen to and everything, in, in, <laughs> you know, everything really. But um, but the Smiths is my default, my go-to
0: all right. Last question. Why do you do what you love for literacy? Because I love it. Um,
2: and I, I, I happen to have just fallen into um, something that I love and that I'm good at and that helps people. You know that that Venn diagram? Oh, and that I can make a living out of. Sorry. There's a Venn diagram that goes, you know, if you can make a living and you like it and it helps others, you're kind of, you're kind of laughing. Well, it just so happens that that is, literacy is that for me. So that's nice. I was very lucky.
1: Yeah, us too. We're
0: so glad that you're here. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Well, I'm glad you're here.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for everything today and and everything you do outside of this interview. (laughs) An enormous pleasure. Thank you. Again, I'm honored, really
2: honored um, to to sit amongst your guests and uh, look forward to hearing lots
1: more of your podcasts. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com.
0: And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you,
1: take a moment to share with a teacher friend, or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts.
0: Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees.
1: We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.